We're going to talk about sin today. Everybody's favorite topic. The reason it's important to talk about it is because there's so much of it in the world and all around us. And to get at the heart, or at least try to understand the whys of it, is I think really important. And this morning we've reached a place in the book of Romans that requires serious thought and a lot of care. Um, it's going to be a little bit theological today. So we are embarking on a section that takes us into deep theological waters. Not that we've been in the shallows exactly lately, but um, we go now to an area that is controversial and somewhat difficult. I personally believe that Christianity wins hands down the contest for best worldview. In other words, if you're going to say, what's the world really like and what philosophy should we have as we come to the world and look at it, Christianity wins. That is, I mean, all kinds of competing philosophies and religions offer explanations for why things are the way they are. Why is the world like it is? Why am I like I am? Why are we so clearly physical and spiritual beings? How did we get so far above the animals? Why are we so passionate about right and wrong? Um, but so often choose to do wrong and so often act worse than animals. Why do we exist? All those kinds of questions. The big questions. And the Bible answers the big questions in a manner that is unapologetically straightforward, clear-eyed, and sound. Not only that, it fits. It, it fits the way things are and it fits the way I am. And that gives it, in my mind, all kinds of credence and strength because so many philosophies and religions just don't and I think whatever fits best the world as we actually find it that's the way to go so in human terms that's one of the main reasons I actually became a Christian when I did many years ago now of course having become a Christian I know that I never would have followed the truth of course without God's grace awakening my heart and him doing a work in me but still from my perspective it was a quest for truth that was the method that he used with me looking for the truth what was actually the real deal on life. And the biggest issue for me personally was the problem of evil. And we talked about this a little way back there in chapter 1 and 2, but the world is just full of corruption. And, and some people blame God for a world of disease and hunger and war and crime and famine and all that kind of stuff. I was never really interested in, in blaming God for all that stuff. Uh, my problem of evil was a, a lot more personal. My big question was, why am I evil? So I couldn't figure that out. I mean, I just couldn't explain it in scientific terms or philosophical terms. I, I grew up in a home and a community in the Midwest, which was a lot like the community and the home I saw on Leave it to Beaver, to tell you the truth. Uh, I even had a big brother named Wally. No, his name wasn't Wally, but I mean, was, and I wore a baseball hat and a jacket just like the Beaver. And my family was just like that. And, and my, I, I, so I couldn't blame my dysfunctional home you know, when you grow up in Warden Jean's house, you can't blame your parents for all your problems. I, did, I didn't have a dysfunctional home. Or, or society. Society was always nice to me. Um, in fact, you know, I was thinking, uh, I did not personally know one family, and I knew a lot of people who had a divorced parent. Not one. I didn't know any divorced family where I grew up. Uh, probably until high school. None. And as I got a little older, if I had any questions about all the social upheaval going on in the 1960s, Sergeant Friday was there every week to explain it to me, and I was plenty happy with his answers. So I thought the hippie culture was stupid and silly anyway as a kid. So. And I believed in goodness. I mean, I really liked good. I thought good was neat. 
I mean, it was just a lot more interesting to me than evil. I thought evil was such an easy way, and good was just a lot more, uh, I don't know, challenging or something. But I wasn't good. I mean, I was good by the standards of the culture, but I was not good by the standards that I had chosen for myself to follow. I couldn't live up to my own belief system. And it was sort of an amalgamation of sort of half Lutheranism and half whatever I thought was nice and stuff like that. And I was repeatedly just stunned, stunned by my own wickedness. And the older I got, the more shocked I was. Well, where does that come from? I mean, that's really the big question. Why couldn't I live a standard I believed in? I wasn't even trying to live a divine standard. I was just trying to live my own, and I, I just couldn't do it. And that is one of life's most important questions. And it's a question that most religions and philosophies literally just skip over because their main purpose is to pat you on the back and make you feel good about who you are. And I suspect they skip it for a reason, because it's really their undoing, because their view of the world doesn't fit what's really there. The Bible says I am wicked because I am a fallen creature, a member of a race of beings actually made in the image of God, which explains why I'm so far above the animals and I have all these qualities about me as a, as a person. And yet a race which rebelled against God and was excluded from his life and the light of his presence. And Romans chapter 5, verse 12 and following goes a long way in explaining this. But the explanation raises some difficult questions. Difficult, not insurmountable. Since the explanation does fit the way things are, and no one else has come even close to giving an adequate explanation for the way things are, but before we get to the controversial stuff, let me remind you of sort of the context of where we've been in Romans 5. Paul's been describing the wonderful benefits of justification by faith, that act whereby God declares righteous and actually puts righteousness into the account of people who believe in Jesus Christ, who put their faith in Jesus. And the result of justification, verse 1 of chapter 5, is we have peace with God. Verse 2, we have a standing with God in grace. And we have an exultant hope, he says. In verse 3 through 5, trials become opportunities for developing greater confidence and hope as we endure those trials in faith. And then in verse 6 through 11, Paul starts the much more section. All the rest of Romans 5 has much more this and much more that and much more this. He explains that unique that unique extent of divine love which rescued us while we were in a condition of enmity and rebellion. And Paul makes that whole argument we talked about last time where, you know, somebody might die for a good person or for a, a comrade or for someone they identified with, but God demonstrates his love which is so vastly superior to human love because he died for us while we were his enemies, while we were sinners, while we were ungodly. Verse 9, it says, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So justification saved from God's wrath, reconciled to God, kept in that position by the living Christ. All of those things are the benefits of justification. Then verse 12 says, therefore, and that's explained what follows is all connected to these wonderful blessings from God in Christ. Paul is explaining how all of this works in the big picture from the beginning to the end. 
That's where he's going to take us now. There's a reason we're in the condition we're in. And Jesus not only fixes our problem, but takes us way beyond even our original glory in paradise. In other words, salvation is way more than a restoration to where we've fallen from. The benefits of it go way beyond that, which we'll be looking at over the next week or so. There are several key words and phrases in verse 12 through 21. One phrase we just talked about is much more. Much more. We saw it in verse 9. We saw it in verse 10. It occurs again in verse 15. It occurs again in verse 17. It occurs again in verse 20. Much more. Each time, much more is connected with the word grace. Verse 15, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound. Verse 17, much more those who receive the abundance of grace. Verse 20, grace abounded all the more, much more, same Greek words. Another key word is the word one, which is used a dozen times. Our existence as sinners and our existence as saints each come through one act by one person. That's the controversial part. Third, um, also look for the word reigns, not reigns, but reigns, you know, like a king reigns. Or rule. There are four rulers. Verse 14, death reigned. Verse 21, sin reigned. Verse 21 again, grace reigned. And if you go back to verse 17, talking about Christians, it says Christians will reign. Christian is defined as, quote, those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. So by one act of one man, Adam, sin and death reigned over the world. And even so, by one act of one man, Jesus Christ, grace and those who receive grace reign. Grace is another key word here, meaning God's favor towards the undeserving, those that don't merit his favor. So it's a wonderful text outlining God's method of redemption. The difficulty and the controversy comes right at the beginning of this section and, and really kind of runs throughout. It's, it's this very idea of one to all. Because we are so individualistic in our thinking that we just get real shaky when we read things like this. There's an old 19th century school books, you know, the old uh, McGuffey readers and all that. They used to have these little rhyme poems to learn your letters. And the very first one was A is for Adam, and you're supposed to learn the little rhyme. And the rhyme was, this is in all the public school textbooks, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. And that is plainly what Paul is getting at here. The difficulties are, well, the non-Christian complains. He says, well, why am I in trouble for what Adam did? And the Christian, who can accept that because that's what the Bible says, wants to understand how that works and, and what's the nature of all that. So the difficulties in trying to understand just how it is that Adam's decision and fall is sort of passed on to all men. Why doesn't, why doesn't Adam's son just start fresh and if he blows it, then his son gets to start fresh? And why are we all in this horrible situation we find ourselves in? In fact, there's a theological camp called Pelagianism which goes way back to the 4th century, a man named Pelagius, which says every human being does have a fresh start. He just couldn't accept that idea. We all start life as free from sin as Adam was before the fall. 
while Pelagianism was condemned as a heresy, and it is plainly wrong. The Bible asserts that the corruption of Adam's sin is truly a part of our nature. And it's just all throughout the whole Bible. Isaiah says even our, our righteous deeds are what? Filthy rags, that's right. David said he was conceived in sin. It's not that his parents sinned in conceiving him. They were properly married. But he had a nature from the very beginning in the womb of a sinner. Jesus said people are evil. That's the word he used to describe humanity, evil. Paul said in Ephesians 2.3 that we are by nature children of wrath. God's wrath abides over us by, by our very nature. And experience, of course, confirms this. Everybody sins, and everybody sins a lot. It just isn't true that you have a fresh start. Because everybody falls into the same thing. If it was just a fresh start every time, you'd think somebody would make it without like sinning all the time. But there, it doesn't happen that way. There's this massive level of corruption in humanity. Pelagius said that um, Adam's only influence on posterity was just his bad example. Adam was a bad example for Seth. Seth was a bad example for his son. Eve was a bad example. Well, all right. That's some bad example to end up as bad as we are. But clearly there's more to it than that. There's a lot of talk about the last phrase in Romans 5, verse 12. Let me just read that verse for you. It says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the, into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men. And then he says, Because all sinned. And in some Bibles, you'll have sort of a, a long slash after the word sin, and then he jumps to verse 13, because it's almost like, in Greek, it's like he's got, a, he's got a hanging thing there where he doesn't quite finish his sentence. And so theologians try to figure out, what was he going to say before he started explaining things in verse 13, you know? Because all sinned in Adam? That's the way most people take it. Because all do sins because of what happened in Adam? I mean... Where was he going with that? He doesn't pick up the thought again until verse 18. And in verse 18 he says, So then, going back to his idea in verse 12, he says, As through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Because all sinned. It's a curious phrase. Some take it to mean we literally sinned in Adam. We were, as it were, in his loins, we'll be talking more about that in a minute, participating because we're in him in some way. And there's some support for this idea in Hebrews chapter 7, um, verse 10. It says that, it's talking about the superiority of Christ's priesthood in Hebrews. And it's talking about Melchizedek, who was a great priest before there was ever a Moses, before there was a Mosaic system, before there was Levi and Levi's tribe, who were the priestly tribe. Long before they ever lived, there was this Melchizedek guy who just shows up in Genesis, and Abraham tithes to him. And since we don't know who Melchizedek was, he doesn't have any ancestry, and he doesn't have any lineage. He's just a priest. He's a priest of God Most High, who Abraham, Abraham acknowledged as a true priest. And the New Testament argues that Christ is a priest like Melchizedek is. He doesn't have to be a Levite. He doesn't have this lineage thing going. It's older. And he says it's superior. Why is it superior? Because it's older than Levi's. It's lifelong. It's not limited. You can only be a priest from like the age of 30 to 50 or so in the Old Testament Levitical system. And he says and also because Levi tithed to Melchizedek. Well, how did Levi tithe to Melchizedek? Because it says he was in the loins of his father Abraham. His great-grandfather tithe to Melchizedek and in a sense 
He was there because through Abraham's progeny, his own nature is born through his children and they sort of were there when he did that. You see that? Now that, that makes modern people just kind of go, huh? But there's some kind of suggestion there in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 10, that, that there's sort of a linkage between us all and our parent to child and grandchild and on and on like that. And I think there probably is a greater solidarity in humanity than we are willing to acknowledge. We live in a highly individualistic age and the idea seems to be that we aren't that connected. But obviously we are because no one can break the mold of the Adam's transgression. If we aren't that connected, then why don't you just decide tomorrow to not do any more Adam stuff? Tomorrow, we're just going to say, I'm not, I'm not going to sin anymore. I'm going to spend a year without sin. I'm just going to do that. Just to show that I'm not really affected by Adam's bad example or my nature. You can't do it. Nobody's been able to break that mold. It's bound up in us. Remember, the name Adam means mankind. And we just, we do just as our first father did. We seem to be driven by whatever drove him. John Calvin, the great reformer, said that Adam, quote, corrupted, vitiated, depraved, and ruined our nature. We have therefore all sinned because we are all imbued with natural corruption. And how is that so? Well, let me offer you just kind of a goofy Wayne analogy to just kind of stay with me for a second, okay? Just kind of picture a couple, a man and a wife, walking along in a beautiful sunny vale in a uh, just a perfectly glorious place, flowers and beautiful trees and abundant water and food everywhere. Sound familiar? And they take sort of a misstep and fall. They fall together down a hole, a long tunnel hole. And they land on a bunch of soft moss or something. They bounce on the bottom. And they survive the fall, but they can't climb back up because it's just totally impossible to get back up. So they're stuck down this hole. Well, they start looking around and they find out there's a whole world down there vast caverns and there's water that's brackish but drinkable and there's kind of weird underground kind of plants and weird underground kind of life forms little lizards and fishies and things without eyes and all sorts of strange things and they find out that they can live down there by eating these things and drinking the water but they can't climb up and they spend years searching for a way out and never find it and so they have children, and they have grandchildren, and they have great-grandchildren, and eventually they die. But the story is still told to their descendants, and they talk about a world where they first came from that was gleamed with light and didn't have a dark, cavernous thing. There was like a blue, wondrous color and a bright object shone in the sky, and, and, and there were colors everywhere, and green on the ground, and different colors like things you can't even imagine and, and all this wonderful stuff which we've never seen but tall animals with fur and eyes and, and uh, uh, all this amazing stuff they'd tell about that story. In other words, it's a world that they're cut off from but have a memory of and once participated in. Well, not that dissimilar from that. We were, we were cut off from paradise but much worse than that, we were cut off from God. And for me, this is where we really need to think about um, how this all 
works itself out. God told Adam and Eve when he laid out the rules, he told Adam, Adam probably told Eve, he said, if you break the rule, dying you will die. Dying you will die. He told them that would be the consequence of disobedience. Death is both spiritual and physical. But death describes a separation. That's what death is. A, a rending asunder. A cutting off. When you die physically, your soul, your spirit, and your body are separated. When you die spiritually, you are cut off from God. You're dead. You might be walking around, but you're dead to Him. Cut off from Him. Spiritual death and physical death. Both those things came about. Their physical death took time as they declined. But their spiritual death was immediate. They were expelled. So in physical death, our, our spirit and our body are divided. In spiritual death, uh, we're separated from God. The New Testament says, Ephesians 2.1, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's what it means. You're cut off from God who is life. Ephesians 4.18 describes the natural man as one who is separated from the life of God. Isaiah 59.2, it says, Your iniquities have separated you from God. So now my, my little analogy of falling down a hole does not include the necessary element, which is true moral guilt. I mean, in the analogy, they just happened to fall down a hole. But what Adam and Eve did was not innocently walk along and fall down a hole. They fell. They chose against God and were expelled. Our first parents were expelled bodily from paradise, but they had already exiled themselves, their own hearts, from God. They've exiled themselves. And we are their children. Born, separated from the life of God, just like they, people being down in the hole. You could talk about what it was like having a life with God, but you're stuck down where you fell to. And we, they fell spiritually, and we're born in the same spiritual condition that they're born into. We are born separated from the life of God. We are born with a corrupted nature. We are born without a love for God. We are born without a true awareness and appreciation of His holy nature. And Adam's sin ravaged our nature. Wrecked the image of God by severing the connection with God. So you're born separated from God. You grow up separated from God. You really don't know Him. So you make all your decisions and your life plans and you work out your thing down here in the pit, if you will. Because that's just something else that we're not even connected to. The blue sky. The living God. We're born that way. We grow up that way. We affirm that corruption in thousands of choices to sin. That's why we need Jesus said, John chapter 3, a new birth, because we're dead. He said, unless you're born of this, again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. You can't see the kingdom. That's why we need reconciliation, because we are divorced from God. That's why we need justification, because we are without excuse. We are Adam's children, and we exist fallen from grace unless God in His mercy extends grace to us that's where we'll stay and that's exactly what He did in Christ extend grace to us to reconcile us to save us from the pit that we've fallen into 
Well, I think we should discuss the different ways Christian theologians have tried to understand how Adam's children are affected by his transgression. This is kind of theological, so just hang on with me. There's, there's three main ideas. We already talked about sort of being in the loins of Adam. In some sense, participating in his rebellion even before our own conception. And there are a number of people that teach this, and it's actually the idea that mankind was one unity in Adam. And we all sinned in him before humanity began to particularize and individualize as people were born. So we're like, literally like in him somehow. And we were actually like there. And in theology, they call this the realistic view. That is, we were all really there. Another common view, very common in reform circles, is, is called the representation theory or the federal headship theory. And that is that God appointed Adam as the representative of the human race. And so when he fell, we all go with him because he represents us. This view is based on the concept that Adam stands in for his posterity, not only as a parent, but as the actual chosen determiner of our destiny by an actual covenant that God made with him. That's called covenant theology, by the way. To understand this covenant theology, you have to have these three basic elements to that. One is this idea of representation, that God ordained that Adam represent all of humankind in a covenant. It's just like, uh, John, you know, when you're a union rep, you know, if you make a bad deal, everybody suffers, right? <laughs> that kind of an idea. You represent your group. There's an idea of probation that comes with this covenantal theology as well. And this is kind of important for their thinking. If you uh, ascribe to this, you, you'd understand it. The covenant would be like a trial period of probation only for Adam. And if he had succeeded in obedience, he would be rewarded with a permanent state of holiness and happiness, just like angels are. They're sort of cemented in their condition. And the third element would be reward or punishment as, it, as regards posterity. If Adam had fulfilled the terms of the covenant, he would obtain a rightful claim to eternal life, and it would be guaranteed to all of his descendants as well. So when we were born, we wouldn't be corrupted. We'd all be wonderful. So the covenant representative arrangement would have been of great benefit to mankind had Adam succeeded. But the possibility of failure was real as well. And of course, that's the course that Adam took. Louis Burkhoff, a Reformed theologian, says it like this. It says, In his righteous judgment, God imputes the guilt of the first sin committed by the head of the covenant to all those that are federally related to him. And as a result, they are born in a depraved and sinful condition as well. And this inherent corruption also involves guilt. So God actually like imputes or reckons or counts guilt to all of humanity based on Adam's position as the race's representative. So remember in the first view, the realistic theory, we're all guilty of Adam's sin because we were like really there. In this view, we're all guilty of Adam's sin because he represents us. Now there's a third view, which is still orthodox and doesn't deny the reality of man's depravity. It fits the world as it really is. Some people call it the immediate imputation view. Now we're really getting into big words, right? Don't, don't, don't let the big words throw you. Impute just means counted, like put to your account, just like we talked about reckoning. Immediate just means um, connecting or, or a means to cause a result. So immediate imputation is talking about what the result is that causes us to have true guilt, and that is our own sin. In other words, this theory rejects the idea that Adam's guilt is imputed or reckoned to his descendants. We're not, we're not bearing his guilt. 
Rather, we only inherit from him our corrupted nature. It's the falling down, the whole idea of being separated from God forever. I mean, until God does something. We're just cut off. So we have this, this worldly view. We have a corrupted nature. We're like him. We inherit from a corrupt nature, a depraved nature. Guilt is only counted for our own deeds that are done as a result of this corruption that we have. Now, all three of these views are held by good people, and they're all acceptable, and they're all, you know, they all have biblical support in some way, and they all have logical support in some way, and they all have problems. I mean, you're really trying to untangle something that's pretty deep here. Personally, I lean on this last view, this immediate imputation idea, but it needs a new name. <laughs> Help me come up with a new name. And my thinking goes back to what I said about this idea of separation. I really think that's the key, that we're separated from God, so we're already born in this condition. Without him, we um, grow up without him. We're thinking without him. We are, are very this-worldly. We'll talk a little bit more about the, the ways that Adam's sin corrupted us next week. We're not so much guilty of Adam's sin as we are spiritually dead as Adam's children. And in our rebellious condition, we commit sins by thought and word and deed, and we accrue our own guilt. That's really where I sort of lean with this. But like I said, all of these views have problems. But what we must deal with is how we find the world we live in. And hey, what we find is that we are all sinners. We plainly have an inherited corrupted nature. There's just no question about it, if you just look at life honestly. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week too. But Paul's point seems to be clear that we see this pervasive corruption and how far it actually extends. Look at the text one more time, verse 12. He says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. That sentence, like I said, it breaks away at the end of verse 12. It goes all the way through verse 17. And then notice his point in verse 13. He says, for until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. Now, normally, we, as we think of things, sin isn't really counted unless there's some sort of rule to break, right? I mean, how can you blame a guy for sinning without a law to break? Moses gave the law, but there was sin in the world before Moses, right? And in verse 12, Paul says, death spread to all men because of Adam. So someone might ask, can you say, how can you say people sin from Adam's day if the definition of sin is breaking the law? That would be the question. How can you say that people sin from Adam's day if sin is breaking the law and that was before the law? That's a good question. Well, what do we know? Verse 14, he says, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. Death reigned. That's really the key idea here. And that proves that there is this sin condition in all of humanity. Either that we somehow literally sinned in Adam or that because we bear his nature and sin ourselves that we all die. Dying thou shalt die. But we're born dying. You can ask any scientist that knows about biology that. You are born dying. There's a clock that starts and it's going to go until you wind down and die. It's built in. All those people between Adam and Moses died, many in a flood of judgment for wickedness in Noah's day. So death, the consequence for sin, reigned. 
And remember chapter 2, verse 14 and 15 of Romans, Paul says that people that have never heard the law are judged by the standard of their own heart, remember? So if they have an internal law, and everyone does, everyone believes in right and wrong, everybody gets mad if you wrong them, so if you lie to me and I get mad, that's my standard. If you steal from me and I get mad, that's my standard. But if I do the same thing, I've broken the law. So people are accountable to a law. Not a law like Adam's. Adam violated a direct divine command. But death still reigned after him. So what's the judgment of those other people? Well, there's a different kind of law. There's a law of their own heart and conscience that they violated. So there was sin, there was death. Even for those who sinned against conscience and not against a direct law like Adam did. Well, then at the end of verse 14, Paul adds a very interesting phrase regarding Adam. It says, who was a type of him who was to come. So Adam resembles Christ in some important way. And the way that is, as we've already talked about, one man, one act, huge consequences. One man, one act, huge consequences. One act brought ruin, one act brings salvation. Two men, two totally different results. We'll look at that next time too. And if it seems unfair somehow that we're in this mess because of Adam, it's way more unfair that we should get all these incredible blessings because of Jesus. Because whatever you want to say about it being unfair about Adam, you still know that you choose to do what's wrong. So you bear your own guilt. As it says in Earlier in Romans chapter 1, it says they are without excuse. There's no excuses for what we do. It's way more unfair that we get all these wonderful blessings we absolutely don't deserve. So let's not argue fairness, because that robs us of the side of unfair, which is glory. There are two sides to this solidarity of the race thing, and one side is mighty pleasant to consider. So come next week, we'll talk about that. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for giving us some sort of enlightenment on this, Lord. What's the alternative explanation? While we are grieved by our own sin, we're thankful that there is a way out. That because of solidarity, racial solidarity, with Adam we have sinned, but there's another solidarity that by faith we are joined to Jesus Christ and so that his righteousness can become ours just as Adam's nature became ours. And in that plan of salvation, Lord, you've devised a mighty wondrous thing. That's the world we find ourselves in. Give us the grace to reach out and take the grace that you offer. And help us even now as we celebrate it in the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.